You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Thank you for coming. Um, this is an event that is part of the Lillian Smith lecture series. I think that's how we're going to kind of frame it now. This is, if we want to think about it, kind of the first Lillian Smith lecture series event. And it's co-sponsored or co-supported by the Georgia Humanities. Um, so we applied for a grant for this event and they were gracious enough to award us a grant for this event to co-sponsor it. And this event actually comes out of a lot of different veins, which I'll talk in a second. But first, I'll introduce myself because I forgot to. So my name is Dr. Matthew Touch, and I'm the director of the Lillian Smith Center here at Piedmont University. And we have Dr. Chad Gibbs, Dr. Yelena Sabovich, and Dr. Thomas Aiello as well I'm from College of Charleston, Georgia State, and Valdosta State, right? And each of these individuals has expertise, of course, in the Holocaust or in Jim Crow or African American literature. And this is something that kind of just came together really quickly, truthfully, and trying, I wanted to find people who were in the area who had seen, and Dr. Subodish and um, Dr. Ayala actually did two events, I think, in 2017 with the, with the Holocaust Memorial, is that right? Actually, when there was a traveling and the Holocaust exhibit, and they actually talked about the same topic. Um, in different places, one in Valdosta and actually one in Atlanta. So this event actually came, and this discussion actually came out of a planned study travel trip that Professor Franklin and I were going to do last year. And it's a little bit further back for me too, but we planned to go on a study travel trip to Poland last year. So to actually go to Gdansk, to go to Warsaw and then go to Krakow. And that trip didn't make. And then of course, with everything with Ukraine and other issues too. But we didn't get to go on the trip. There was a student who wanted to go on the trip. She was graduating, but then wanted to do, still wanted to do the class. So we actually did a study, basically a regular study class with it. And we met during the summer and we wrote an essay that's going to get published about Lillian Smith and this topic too. So if you want to read that, let me know and I'll share it with you. But talking about the intersections of Jim Crow and the Holocaust, because Lillian Smith talks about it some. One of the things that stands out with, with that student is she said when she talked to people about taking the class, they were like, why are you taking that class? What does it matter, right? So when you think of personally as somebody who's born and raised in the South and who is of a certain phenotype, the connections between Jim Crow and the Holocaust, that's something we don't really think about, right? If we're doing, say, African-American studies or maybe even if we're doing Holocaust studies or whatever too, we may not think about that. But there's tons of evidence and research that shows there are connections. And one of the things that really kind of stands out to me that I always go back to is there's a book called The Anatomy of Fascism by Robert Paxton, which deals with Mussolini's rise and Hitler's rise. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a little while since I read it. But he makes a couple of comments in there. And one of the comments that really stood out to me was that the Klan is the first fascist group. It's kind of his argument. That makes sense. It's paramilitary, all this other type of stuff, right? So if you 
if you kind of dig in, then also even look that the Nazis took Jim Crow laws and used them to make the Nuremberg laws and things like that. And they thought that the one drop rule went too far. Just let that sink in. Um, but that's kind of where this arose from. And this is really just kind of a, a discussion about this topic. Tomorrow is, and Dr. Gibbs can, can talk about this because he was actually informing me. Tomorrow is the United Nations Holocaust Remembrance Day. There are two Holocaust Remembrance Days. The other one's in April, correct? And I'll let him explain it. So when you see kind of that discussion, I've always wondered why are there two of them? And he explained it to me. And I think that's important to discuss too, at least kind of at the outset. But this will just basically be a reforming discussion. I don't have any kind of questions or anything prepared. I'll let them talk about the research, introduce themselves too, and then we'll talk, I think, about a very, a very wide range of topics. And then we'll open it up for questions. Okay. I'll pass it along. That's you. you. Yeah, right next to you. <laughs> I guess I'm going first. Step away from the microphone. Uh, well, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I wanted to say thanks for bringing me up from Charleston. I guess I'm the only out of state. I think my connection that I want to start with is bring in some of uh, the post war in the United States to this conversation right at the beginning. Uh, so when I started at the College of Charleston, uh, which was only a year and a half ago, uh, despite looking like father time, I'm only uh, a newer professor because this is my second career. Um, thank you. Uh, so I started developing classes, and one that I uh, built is called Race in the Second World War, uh, which is a worldwide look at where is race, uh, a determining factor of how the war is fought, where is race, the reasoning for that fighting, where is race, the driving force behind how perhaps a whole state organizes itself, and then what are the, the follow-on changes racially perhaps because of the war. Um, and I end the class geographically right in South Carolina um, because there's a, a courthouse in Charleston, South Carolina, where Jay Waddy's wearing a federal judge uh, was one of the first uh, federal district court judges to rule uh, segregation was illegal. Uh, and then his decision was struck down and had to go to the Supreme Court. But long story short, he was inspired in his activism by an African-American soldier returning from World War II um, and being beaten blind, literally, by uh, a racist sheriff in a place called Batesburg, Leesville. Um, and not that Lee, actually. I looked it up. It's named after a different Lee by coincidence. But um, what Jay Waddy's wearing saw that and um, I'm stealing a great deal here from Judge today's Judge Richard Gergel's book on example of courage. That um, is, you know, you're you're in a new place. For me, it was in a new place as in Charleston, and I'm from Wyoming. So <laughs> huge change. While I wasn't dying from humidity, I was trying to figure out how you teach locally, and these are the things that I found. And part of that was how do you be a Holocaust historian in a place like Charleston, South Carolina? Um, and I'll say one last thing. Um, part of that localization thinking was that I was 
going to be teaching Holocaust studies in a Jewish studies building that is roughly 100 yards away from the Kress building where one of the lunch counter citizens was um, in the 1960s. So I was like, we have to do something with this. And that's how I kind of began getting into this conversation myself. Which button? Which box? Hold it down for me. Yeah. No? Yeah. There it goes. Okay. Excellent. Um, so, well, thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, I'm, I'm based in Atlanta, so that's not, that's not very far, but I've, I've never been here. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. And again, thanks for the invitation. So let me tell you a little bit about what I do and how that relates to our topic. So my research um, most recently has been on the way in which the Holocaust is remembered. So um, I study the politics of memory, which in practical terms means uh, museums of the Holocaust, memorials of the Holocaust, textbooks that narrate the Holocaust, movies and plays, um, way in which the Holocaust is used in political speeches, um, and the way in which it's used uh, as we are witnessing right now very directly uh, in the context of the war uh, against Ukraine, the way in which political leaders still use the Holocaust to frame their contemporary political decisions. So my research um, has taken me uh, mostly to Eastern Europe, which is the region that I know the best. And I have studied um, extensively um, the way in which the Holocaust is memorialized in, in, in Eastern Europe through looking at um, museums and uh, uh, memorial actions, commemorative practices in the Balkans, um, Serbia and Croatia are the countries that are not the best, and also in the Baltics. Uh, and there I studied Lithuania uh, as one of the countries um, that I chose to, uh, to look at. But again, it, obviously events and memorialization practices in the rest of Eastern Europe are also part of my research. So things that are going on in Poland, uh, for example, right now, that are very problematic in the sense of how the current government is uh, mandating what scholars can and cannot say about whether, for example, any Poles participate in the Holocaust. And they even passed a law in 2018 that says that no research can uh, insinuate that Poland participated in the Holocaust, or the Polish nation participated in the Holocaust. It all, everything has to say that it's Germans alone, uh, which does not correspond to historical record. So I'm interested in these kinds of topics of kind of Holocaust revisionism, but also looking at memorial practices. So that brings me in, in dialogue with practices of commemoration of uh, race terror in the United States, for lack of a better word. And so here I'm interested in uh, what can the United States learn from other countries uh, in how to memorialize um, uh, issues of, you know, anything from Jim Crow, but before lynching and, you know, slavery? And how is it that the United States, that has a much longer history of racial oppression, there's so little memorialization, as opposed to countries in Europe that have a much shorter time frame that do have some instances of memorialization. So that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in, for example, the, the politics behind and the reception of 
the, um, the memorial, uh, what's called the Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, which is one of the first institutions in the United States that, that took on itself to memorialize in a way that's similar to how the Holocaust was memorialized, for example, in Germany, and to do that for the victims of lynching. And so I'm very interested in, in, in that. And, and also in the kind of larger issues of, of what is it about um, the United States view of itself and its view of its exceptionalism and its own national identity that makes it so difficult and contentious to do memorization practices that have been going on in Europe. Good and bad, um, uh, problematic as they are, for a much longer period of time. Thank you. Well, I um, do not study Europe. I am a race historian uh, and I study the United States. And I am here to tell you that the United States has not learned any of the lessons uh, that we just talked about. Um, it was just, even as um, the Polish government is trying to dictate how. The Holocaust is taught in that country um, just below us in Florida. Uh, the governor has banned various African American studies classes because he doesn't want white people to look bad to students. And so we're doing the exact same things. None of this has really changed. And I think maybe one of the most interesting places we could start if we're starting from the back and moving, and we're starting from the end and moving backward, we might say that. Um, that the Holocaust and Jim Crow um, really diverge at a certain point and do become a little bit different. So, for example, um, Germany ostensibly bans the Nazi flag after World War II, and yet we still see um, uh, Confederate flags on half the pickup trucks that we drive past every single day. Um, we have chosen a different path, and I think that that popular outgrowth is stems very specifically from the kinds of government level memorialization practices that we were just talking about. And so while we will see today a lot of similarities between the kinds of behaviors that were going on during Jim Crow in the United States and the kinds of behaviors that were going on in Germany in the 1930s, there are some points of divergence, and one of them is that a lot of people in the region uh, that was home to the vast majority of Jim Crow laws still celebrate the iconography that went along with those laws, even when they claim not to care about the actual laws themselves. It's a hard case to make, and it's one that it's a legacy that forces the black population in Georgia, for example, to still have to reckon every day with a legacy that is not being denied by its leaders. Whereas in Europe, at least they're giving vocal, uh, some kind of uh, peon to the idea that they have ultimately rejected what happened in the 1930s, 1940s. The South, the South still revels in it. And it means that the South Black population still has to walk out of buildings like this and live in a climate that hasn't changed dramatically much 
since that era. And it leaves a problematic legacy. And so for all the similarities that we're about to talk about, there are these points of divergence, which, um, which leave Jim Crow's legacy very much in our face um, uh, in, a, in a really problematic. So one thing that I heard you all talk about, which I know that you, this is your research, is memorialization. And as you were, you were talking, I'm reminded when I was at, when I was at Auburn, so I was in Alabama for two years. It's Confederate Memorial Day. They still celebrate, of course. It's the same. It's MLK Day. It's Robert Lee Robert Lee's birthday. Right. right. So they're celebrating together. Um, there it is one more state. Didn't Georgia celebrate? I don't remember. The, yeah, the, 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 Georgia still celebrated. Virginia. Virginia. Okay. I, I, I know that Alabama still celebrates. I mean, for one thing. The other thing is the EJI. And the EJI, I want to take students there again. When I was in Auburn and just opened, I took them. And it's a memorial to the victims of lynching. Okay. And it is set up like the memorials. You want to understand. I've never been to Germany, but I kind of like the, the one there. You want to understand. And I didn't realize this when I went into it, but when you go in, you actually go down. And it's basically these pillars of every county. So you go look for your own county and the people who were recorded to have been lynched there, whether they were named or not named. And you go down and you walk underneath them and look up. So they're putting you in a position of looking up at somebody who's being lynched. Now, the other part of that museum is actually a museum, um, I think, called From Enslavement to Incarceration. So it's, it's, it's chronicling enslavement, Jim Crow, to mass incarceration, that history, right? And all within the context of Montgomery, which was a hub for, for civil rights. Montgomery was also a huge um, slave trading place, too. There was a slave market right down the road like a few of them what i find really interesting about montgomery and we're talking mobilization when i went we took the family around y'all know that martin luther king was at dexter avenue baptist church right montgomery right yes no at least the name here's dexter avenue baptist church right here if you see my name there's a street right here right here is the state capitol where George Wallace stood, I think George Wallace stood there, I don't remember. So many people have stood at that state capitol and said that segregation is the way to go. That's not what caught my attention. What caught my attention is here's Dexter Avenue. There's a plaque to Dexter Avenue saying this is where Martin Luther King Jr. preached. This is where he served as minister. Immediately across the street, there is a stone placed by the United Daughters of the Confederacy that says this is the inaugural path that Jefferson Davis took to become the president of the Confederacy. How does that juxtaposition work? And this is the same space as well that has the White House of the Confederacy. It is still a place you can tour, where Jefferson Davis was, right? You have a place like that. You have a place in Koufax, Louisiana, which I was just reading about again from Louisiana, but Koufax was a racial massacre 1872, I think, around the presidential election, around state elections, and blacks were elected into the government, and then they put themselves, they locked themselves in the courthouse because they were expecting a coup from white supremacists, and the white supremacists drug them, I think, burned it, drug them out, ended up killing 150 blacks, three whites lost their life. There are two memorials in Kovacs. One is an obelisk that is in the cemetery that reads, in the honor of these people's names, these white, these heroes who were upholding white supremacy. That's the language on the obelisk. <laughs> um, and then there's a memorial that says, 
um, in recognition of the Kovacs massacre, the end of scallywag and carpetbagger rule in the, in the South. What does that do? And then, and then the last thing, and I'll pass it on to y'all. We need to talk about the Whitney, but, but bring it closer to home. The first time I went to UGA, I saw the marker. There's, there's two markers at UGA, y'all been around the campus, right? One is right next to the, to the um, what is it, the arches? It talks about the history of UGA, right? I know what I'm talking about, if you've been there. I read the marker and it was put up in the 50s and then we put up and I stopped in my tracks because there's one paragraph that's about, okay, it's the, it's the oldest name for any university in the US, true, all this stuff, right? When it gets to the Civil War, it says, um, the students who went to fight for the, for the war of Southern independence. That's the language. And I think about, as Dr. Ayala was saying about, if I was black walking through the space, especially somewhere at UGA, where how much the football team is African-American or the, um, the basketball team, and then UGA's black population, I just looked it up the other day, is 8%. What does that do to your psyche? I can't imagine it. But the other thing is right, right across the quad too, there's a monument to um, Shirley and Connor Goff and um, Hamilton Holmes, who were the first two black students to integrate. And there were riots when they integrated. They got kicked out and they were had to be under guard. Um, Hunter Holmes, Lillian Smith writes about this in a letter, had to go to somebody's house and the men stayed up with guns to protect them while he was in that, while he was there. That marker, all it says is, this is this used to be the former administration building where the first two black students in the name of integrated UGA. No talk of the violence. So that memorialization is one part of this and one very important part of it. It doesn't even get to the history of how these things are connected, but do y'all want to speak? Because y'all are more familiar, I know, with, with Eastern Europe and everything too. And I've been to Warsaw and I forgot all about that Polish law. Um, so what are kind of these? And in Charleston, I'm sure you have the same thing. <laughs> sure. Um, so Charleston is, and I'll probably tell you all something you might already know, a um, huge tourist destination. Um, it's just in some meeting where somebody said 9 million people here go through Charleston. I think it's the banners. Yeah. And it's, I'm trying to use it as the example. It's also a place that has kind of not really dealt with its history, but in some ways, very, very literally just kind of made it a little quieter for the, for the sake of the tourists. Um, the Charleston City Market is this uh, 1820s, 1840s built structure that runs along Market Street. You walk straight down the middle of the street inside this market. Um, like the, the worst thing that may be coming to your mind is, well, did they, were, were enslaved people sold there? And the answer at least for that is no. Uh, but not for good, not that uh, that makes it better because they were in fact sold everywhere. People just pulled up at any street corner in Charleston and sold human beings from any street corner. So we end up, yeah, it was the largest uh, slave port in the United States for most of that history. Um, so we end up with, instead of just things being centralized to that one market, which I would return to because the museum is inside it, uh, we actually end up being the only community in the world that I can think of that has a Charleston Holocaust Memorial sitting on top of the street corner where enslaved people were once sold. 
um, and that used to be sandwiched in between a gigantic obelisk statue to John C. Calhoun, um, who is in the running for top three most racist people in the history of humankind. I don't know if he's winning, but he's, <laughs> he's really, really up there. Um, there was a 90-foot-tall statue of him that would literally cast a John C. Calhoun-shaped shadow onto the Holocaust memorial. And it finally came down amidst uh, Black Lives Matter um, protests and various protests about memorials to Confederates. They got that one, but the obelisk to Wade Hampton, who was the uh, third largest owner of human beings in the state of South Carolina, which again puts you in the ranking for largest owner of human beings in the United States before the Civil War, then was a Confederate cavalry commander, and then unreconstructed, you could say literally, figuratively, jokingly, ends up governor of South Carolina after the war. His obelisk is still in Marion Square within eyeshot of the Holocaust Memorial. You can take a picture of the Holocaust Memorial and have an enslaver's memorial in the same picture. That's the same you can do with Dexter and look at the memorial and be like right across, having the same shot. Yeah, and going back to that memorial in, well, not memorial, but a museum that is kind of now literally hidden inside the Charleston City Market, the, the beautiful front-end market building, pre-war, pre antebellum construction, it looks pretty. You walk up the stairs to it. There's no longer any sign that says what the museum is because it's a United Daughters of the Confederacy Confederate Museum. And if you walk in there, um, how many of you have heard of the red shirts? It's maybe a little bit niche, but the red shirts are kind of, I'm going to say, not being an Americanist and being a little out of my own here, a bit of a precursor to the Klan, uh, white terrorists attempting to terrorize African Americans back into a position of virtual slavery in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And inside one of the cases in the Charleston Museum, is a red shirt, one of their actual red shirts. Uh, they weren't inventive, they wore red shirts and called themselves red shirts. Um, they, it is sitting right there in the, in the case with kind of laudatory language all around it. And this is where I'll kind of try to make my point and let go of the microphone in that without going into a huge history of Germany dealing with Nazi past, um, Germany does a very good job, I would start by saying, but didn't get there on its own uh, to, to tag on to what Thomas brought up. Um, there was an enforcement of that memory from 1945 onward. There was even a, a revitalization of that enforcement in the 1990s when there had to be certain deals made uh, in exchange for German unity. Um, more dealing with that past would be necessary. And this is my last mm -hmm. point, having brought that all together, I hope um, that the South, though there was a reconstruction, was never really reconstructed. Still working on And I, I, I won't go yet, but I'll just add a brief context that says um, the red shirts uh, were actually contemporary to the Ku Klux Klan. They were one of many groups that were around, the Knights of the White Camellia, uh, the White League, the Red Shirts, the Ku Klux Klan were all operating at the same time. They wore red shirts 
because the decade prior, Garibaldi had liberated Sicily and Italy, and they saw themselves as liberating the South, just like Garibaldi was bringing together Italy. And so they were very much contemporary with the Klan, and they did have an international kind of perspective. But, but just to, to make one quick thing. I, I apologize. One thing I mentioned to, to Chad earlier that I don't think you knew about, correct me if I'm wrong, even after World War II, you know, the second clan rose in the 20s and actually started on Stone Mountain, Georgia. So the second clan had their first, and it was a Methodist minister who started it, right? Who gave a speech, right? A Methodist minister who was giving a speech at the clan, at the second rise of the clan, right? On Stone Mountain, Atlanta. But immediately after the war, I found out about a group of people called the Colombians who were about 46 to 47 or 48, who I think served in the war. And they came back and there was a there were newspaper articles about there anything too. They were Nazi sympathizers who bore swastikas and everything, had a a building next to a clan clavern around Warhouse and Spellman around that area. So terrorizing and they attacked people. I think they were involved in the synagogue bombing in the 50s in Atlanta. So very much Nazi sympathizers. And even before the war, if you kept up with history or no. There were Nazi sympathizers in the U.S. Um, the pro-American rally, which is what it was called, in Madison Square Garden was the German-American boom. There were 20,000 people with pictures of George Washington right next to his swastika, and then singing the national anthem and all this stuff. Yeah, Chad. So my, um, I, I'm gonna try and. Uh, do the international, there we go, the international context a little bit here uh, and how these issues are playing out um, in different contexts. So in the context of Holocaust memory in Eastern Europe, very similar debates to the ones that we just uh, heard play out in relationship to um, whose memory should we honor and what about us? So in Poland, the Poles would say, what about us? We all know about the Jews and the Jewish suffering. What about us? What about the Poles? In Hungary, they would say, we all know about the Jews. There's, there's a museum of in the Holocaust, but there's no museum of Hungarian suffering. So we're going to build one. And they do the same all over the place. So the, these are issues very, very similar to a form of competitive victimization that, that it's almost like a race to the like you know everybody wants to have their own genocide and everybody wants to be the victim and uh, the main uh, victim of their own story and so a lot of the political debates that are going on in Eastern Europe about Holocaust memorialization are specifically about this. Um, so I'll give you two examples. In Poland, a couple of years ago, um, in Warsaw, overnight, uh, a memorial plaque was put up uh, in one of the streets in Warsaw that said on this location there was a German concentration camp, KL Warsaw, where 60,000 or uh, whatever, many, many thousands of Poles were killed. So I looked at that. <laughs> so that doesn't sound, that does not, I don't recall this. Uh, so People who are, you know, historians of, of Poland have already been on this case. So what turned out is that this was not what happened. What happened was that there indeed was a concentration camp on that location. 
but it was a concentration camp of Jews who were brought in as slave labor from other parts of Europe and were then put in there. And most of them were either, either died doing slave labor or were then taken to other camps in Poland. So part of it was correct. There was a camp, but who were the people in it was appropriated by this right-wing organization that wanted to um, uh, portray to tourists who come to Warsaw that we, the Poles, were just as victimized as everybody else. And there are many, many instances of this kind of nationalization of memory, making the global memory of the Holocaust your own national one. In, for example, in Auschwitz, Auschwitz did, of course, have many thousands of Polish prisoners. It, it was not just Jews who were there. There were Polish prisoners. There were um, communists, uh, other people brought in. This is all true, but overwhelmingly it was for the Jews and over, overwhelmingly the, the Jews were the victims. But uh, Auschwitz Museum, for example, is an, is an institution of the Polish state because government is a public facility. So they got a lot of pressure from the Polish government to keep promoting the Polish victims. Uh, so if, if you don't know the history of Auschwitz, you would you would think that the level of victims was about the same. You wouldn't really understand the overwhelming um, nature of, of Jewish suffering in, in Auschwitz. Uh, and some of these developments are directly related to the current um, Polish government that's in power, the Peace and Justice Party, came to power 2015, 2016. Things have really taken a, a quite radical turn under their leadership. And, which means that hopefully, if they're ever replaced, things things will hopefully get corrected. And the second example I want to give you is from Lithuania. So in Vilnius, capital of Lithuania, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest, uh, but certainly the biggest museum attraction is the so-called Museum of Genocide. Now that museum has recently changed its name under a lot of political pressure. So it's now called Museum of Freedoms and Occupations, which is just not great. Um, but it, but the, the problem with that museum is that Lithuania was the deadliest country to be a Jew during the Holocaust. In other words, 95% of Lithuanian Jews were killed, which is the highest proportion of any country anywhere here. Basically, almost all Lithuanian Jews were killed. And, which is problematic for Lithuanian politics and, and historiography, they were mostly killed actually by Lithuanian troops. Now, these militias, Lithuanian militias were incorporated into German troops and Germans gave the orders, obviously. But the actual killing was done mostly by Lithuanians. So a lot of the victims knew their perpetrators, their neighbors and friends who were shooting uh, at them. Most Lithuanian Jews were killed in shooting sprees. Um, some were taken to camps, so most of them were actually killed in these like shooting sprees. So then you go to the Museum of Genocide, and so you think, well, they're gonna talk about this genocide, the, the, the deadliest genocide, in terms of location in Europe. But that's not what this museum is about at all. It's a museum to Lithuanian victims of Soviet occupational period of Soviet communism from 1945 until uh, 1991, as they consider the period of Lithuania under Soviet Union as genocide of Lithuanians. So you have to kind of double take, like, well, that's not really, that's usually how we refer to genocide. I mean, yes, occupation and you know, communist repression, and it's bad, uh, but it's very different from genocide. And, and this became a very, very um, sensitive political issue, for example, in, in Lithuania, as um, a lot of the foreign diplomatic corps 
uh, stationed in Vilnius would be taken to this museum and they would all expect to see the Holocaust, but there was no Holocaust. So they kept saying, you've got to change this, which is why they changed the name of the museum to Victims of Freedoms and Occupations, something like that. And they put in, in the entire museum, a tiny little room dedicated to the Holocaust. Um, I've been there, uh, so I've taken pictures myself, and it's it's very uh, it's very minimal description. It, it again talks about how yes, there was Holocaust, of course, this was horrible, but this was this was German problem, and this is what Germany did, and there's very little any understanding that actually most of the killing was done by by Lithuanian perpetrators, and and this issue of you know what about us is very reminiscent. To the you know uh, slavery civil rights you know you know what what about you know, we were victims too that's 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 a universal predicament uh, it's not just an American speciality. I wanted to tack it. We we talked a little bit about at this same museum at lunch. Um, they just a great example of what you were saying. Just want to tack on to to that point about that museum is that. I've been there as well. Um, that one room, a former jail cell in the basement, is the only room that covers the anti-Jewish Holocaust. Um, has a had, this was before the remodel. Don't know if this is still there, but this gigantic sign at the end of one hallway that gives you the facts and figures of how many Lithuanians were killed in this, that, or the other wave of violence from World War II through Soviet rule. Um, and in looking at the totals on that map, um, maybe this is a great way to open up questions of identity for everybody else on the panel. I realized looking at that map and doing the numbers, this doesn't work, wait. The only way that a Jew becomes a Lithuanian is in death. They counted Jews as Lithuanian once they've been murdered and then used that to move upward the amount of Lithuanians who've been killed in the Holocaust. At any time in which the Jewish person is alive, they're not counted as Lithuanian. But then once they are dead, they are. Uh, I'm about to open for questions. You want to go real quick? Uh, well, yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, we have talked um, so far about kind of the geography of commemoration, like how we remember these things. I think it's important to remember, maybe before we open it up for questions, that there's a reason why these comparisons between the Holocaust and Jim Crow exist. It's not just in how we remember them. It's that they were going on contemporaneously, and they look a lot alike. When we went to go fight in World War II, we went to go fight against a country who believed it was a master race and so it took everybody who it thought was less than them, segregated them away in the ghettos, and sometimes killed them. If that sounds familiar, it should. That is the exact same synergy you could say about the American South. And the Black population knew it. The Black newspapers at the time inaugurated what became known as the Double B campaign, where they argued that they would support World War II, unlike World War I, which they did not support, specifically because we were claiming that we were going to go fight a war to make the world safe for democracy, but we didn't have one at home. In World War II, they said we will support World War II, but we will also contemporaneously fight for everything back here at home and keep pointing out 
that we are just as bad as Nazi Germany. And that was appeared in black newspapers every single week. They were almost all weekends. Uh, every single week, these messages came around. And the similarities here don't just stop at the water's edge of the black experience in, as represented in newspapers. The Nazis came to power by stoking resentment over the Treaty of Versailles, over the end of World War I, um, and the liberalism of Weimar Germany. Uh, and then once they seized power, they eliminated their enemies through various pogroms and instituted a one-party dictatorial state. That is the exact model that the Redeemers used to create Jim Crow. The Redeemers came to power in the South in the 1880, in the 1870s and 80s by stoking resentment over the end of the Civil War. And then once they end the liberalism of Reconstruction, Reconstruction in this metaphor is Weimar. And then after that, they seized power. They eliminated their enemies through race riots, through lynchings, and other acts of organized domestic terrorism and then instituted a one-party dictatorial state, the Democratic Party, that was the party of Southern white supremacy for the entire time that Jim Crow existed. These are not simple, just kind of metaphorical connections. We're doing the exact same things, whether it be in the 1870s or the 1930s. The differences are Myriad. There are lots of differences between the two. The South never got extermination camps. The, the Jim Crow lasted from the 1880s all the way until the 1960s. It lasted much longer, and so it was more of a slow burn. But there are a lot of, not, not just in how we remember these things, but in actual on-the-ground experiences that the Black population in this country had to suffer that look incredibly similar to the sufferings of many people in Europe in the 20th century. And why we didn't have, the one major difference, of course, is that we did not have extermination, that we were not even, we didn't really experience a genocide either. Um, the, the reason for that being that it wasn't extermination, is we wanted to keep Black people alive so that we could make them work for us. Um, so there wasn't really any kind of exterminationist death either. But with that exception, so much of these things look alike. Our convict lease camps and the prison camps that we instituted in Georgia killed more than 25% of everybody who walked in there. Thousands upon thousands of Black people who were kidnapped, put into prison camps, and killed right here in Georgia. That's not even including Louisiana, Mississippi, or... That's not even including the other states. Louisiana does it a little bit different. Convict lease looks different in all the other states. Louisiana centralizes it and puts it in one prison farm, Angola, which still happens to be the state penitentiary of the MHA. Georgia does theirs by leasing out these camps. The one where I'm from in South Georgia essentially just kidnapped people from Florida, put them in there, had a 25% death rate. The first the first civil rights, national civil rights effort at convicting white people in the South was for a convict camp right outside of Austin, Georgia. They didn't get a conviction, but because they had killed 25% of the people working there. And so we don't have organized mass extermination. And that becomes the story that, of course, the Holocaust, that is the story. But if we're thinking not just about the Holocaust, but about Nazis and Jim Crow, and you take out death camps. There's a reason why these the spatial geography of commemoration looks so similar. 
we are talking about um, much the same kinds of efforts. And there might be in that being questions about eugenics and how we develop that and the, the culture of white supremacy that helps drive eugenic discussions and end up being adopted by the Nazis or whatever else. But more than that, we're just doing the same things throughout these things. And so as we remember the way we commemorate and the spatial geography of that, there is a temporal geography that goes back in history that makes us also look relatively similar. There's three things I want to wrap up. Number one is, this is online if you want to find it. We use this in the Jim Crow and the Holocaust class with the student. So this is William Patterson, I think the Civil Rights Commission. They, so after the Holocaust, the UN came up with the Genocide Convention. And it's not just physical extermination, it's physical, it's psychological as well. And other things, there's like four or five points. The US did not accept that um, until 1988 under Reagan, FYI. So there was white supremacist backlash to even accepting the genocide convention um, statement. Even though the term was created in the United States. Exactly. So this is, they published this in 51. They submitted this to the UN and they lay out the case that, yes, while there are differences, that the US has systematically hit each and every one of these points that you put in the genocide convention. And the evidence in here is like pages and they only deal with 1940. Five, I remember, maybe 1941 through 51, a very short period of time. And when I was reading this, it's a, it's a difficult read because they basically take the newspaper clipping and put it in there. The number of veterans that are attacked, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't keep, um, I couldn't keep my mind. Almost everyone was, a veteran was attacked, a veteran was attacked, a veteran was attacked or killed or blind or whatever. That's what happened after World War I with the right song, right? But it reminds me too of that discussion I've had about Lithuania is when did when did these soldiers become citizens in death? Even in death, they weren't citizens if they were murdered here, right? But if they were murdered in Europe, if they died in Europe or in the Pacific, they were citizens, right? So what does that even do? Two more things before I kind of wrap up. When I was started doing this research too. You've probably seen the picture of a Jim Crow, a man at a bus stop. I think it's in South Carolina. If you look it up, Jim Crow segregation bus stop, South Carolina pop up. It's a black man in front of a bus, maybe drinking or something. There's a newsstand right behind it. And if you look at the newsstand, there's some, there's some magazines. One of the magazines says Hitler's love life. And I'm like, to me, that is just like an encapsulation of these two things together. Because remember, Hitler was Time's person of the year. And I don't remember what year. I wouldn't know that probably. 30-something. The Remember that we had Nazi sympathizers. I told you about Madison Square Garden, all that stuff, right? The thought that we're exceptional, I agree that we, that we did good. We did get the, the thought that we're so exceptional that we don't have these issues is that's a huge problem, I think, with, with us, right? This myth of exceptionalism. But the other thing about the black press, one thing I did, and you can go to the, the United States Historic um, Holocaust Memorial and actually search newspapers. And when the student and I were writing this essay, I was searching newspapers and I found a piece from a student at Morehouse, a student just like y'all. So at Morehouse, so your age, right? 18, 19, 20. 
1933, right after Hitler comes to power, um, he comes in January. The Jew, the boy, when's the boycott? The Jewish boycott? He's talking about that. Yeah, so February or March. Okay. So right after the, the, the Nazi Jewish boycott, basically, when they boycotted Jewish businesses, he writes a paper or, or, or a letter or an editorial, and he sums up basically what the black press mostly says as they go throughout it, as, as they go throughout the years. And he points out all of the imperialistic things that the US has done. He points out all this other stuff. But at the end, he says, he, he basically pulls back to Jesus and says, you know, before moving the speck in your own house, before moving the speck in your brother's house, look at the plank in your own. So the point is, I think that Thomas and everybody's getting that too, is people saw what was going on and knew what was going on and saw that it was connected somehow here. And one thing they didn't even point out that I was waiting for Thomas to point out. This is an excellent book, at least for me, but this is written by a lawyer. Um, we have a copy of the library on Hitler's American model, and he talks about how the Nuremberg laws are based off of, of course, Jim Crow laws. And they, the Nazis sent lawyers over here to study our laws. They sent groups of lawyers over here to look and see what was going on in the South because they were crazy what was going on. So questions? <laughs> I mean, there, there's a there's a lot more. I'm sure that all all of us could talk about, and I, think, I feel it feels overwhelming. But questions or comments, and I can pass around the microphone. Or you can shout. I just wanted to know how uh, religion played into the similarities or differences in the two experiences, both on those being succumbed to the to, who succumbed to the tragedy, and also those. Who were committing the atrocities and i think it's interesting as well because judaism and jewish identity are intertwined and the only uh race where a religion is inherent i, I guess so what would be the difference or similarities in how religion affected um these things i can i can just answer quickly on the jewish on the jewish question actually um the nazis this is a bit complex, but to, to simplify, the Nazis uh, uh, considered Jews a racial camp. So whether somebody was religious or not was irrelevant because there are many Jews who are not religious and their Judaism is complex and being Jewish doesn't necessarily mean that you even believe in God, let alone that you are religious. They're secular Jews, they're very orthodox Jews, they're visibly orthodox Jews. It is true that during the Holocaust, uh, a high percentage of visibly Orthodox Jews who were dressed in a kind of religious garb were victimized because they're more easily identifiable than those who assimilated. But even uh, very assimilated Jews, even Jews who converted to Catholicism, not just to save themselves or to think they're going to save themselves, this is also very common during the Holocaust or mass conversion ceremonies uh, where people were trying to save themselves by conversion. That didn't work. But even for families who were Jewish 100 years ago and then assimilated or converted to Catholicism or Protestantism in at the turn of the 20th century, so they raised children and grandchildren not in the Jewish faith at all, they were considered Jewish racially in a racial path. And so that is, uh, and I think also applicable to our understanding of, of race issues in the United States is that race is a, is a construct. And so in other words, uh, race doesn't exist without racism. The idea of race 
doesn't exist unless you put a value on it. And usually it's a racist value. And this is the same way in which I think we should understand construction of race in the United States. And somebody mentioned that, I think one of the, the, the one of you guys mentioned that, and, and yes, the Nazis did think that the, the one drop of blood rule was too extreme. They went with uh, one Jewish grandparent. Um, and so they did study this and they, they kind of took their own. Because if you don't know, the one drop rule basically meant that if you had a great grandparent, you was black, you were black. So if you looked phenotypically white, you were black, right? So they thought that went too far. So then went back to, the, to one grandparent, right? Yeah, it was the one grandparent. And so and the, and the flip side, the perpetrator side, certainly there's a role in religion um, in on the perpetration of the Holocaust because a particular version of Christianity was integral to the Nazi project. But the Nazi project was much broader than religion. It was not, it, I think it's too simplistic to say it was a religious war. It was more like a racialized terror in the in the grand vision of a new world order. That's the best and it, it's, it's something I'm interested in is looking at the Christian rhetoric that is around that because there's definitely Christian rhetoric around Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. um, a book that I started reading that I'm doing with the LES class is um, White Too Long by Robert Jones. I've gotten to like the second chapter and like he's talking about two lynchings and massacres and the fact that they both occurred on Sunday and that people are coming out of church and no minister said anything. Okay. This is not directly to your question on religion, but it's brought up by these uh, the wider conversation. What defines race in these, these empires? Uh, I think it's very interesting. I always point this out to students in my Holocaust class and my race in World War II class, and it's kind of one of those moments where their heads explode. Because the Nazi Germany had no definition of what Germanness was. They had a definition of what Jewish was, and they were everything that wasn't. The United States doesn't have a perfect definition of what white is, but they know it's not black. And it's the same for the, the, the massive importance applied to both of these things. Uh, to these categories created by the aggressor. So it's one part of the definition of genocide is that the, the aggressor defines the category. So a lot of people die in Auschwitz praying on their cross. But as far as Nazis are concerned, they were born Jewish and therefore are immutably blood Jewish. Um, that one grandparent thing always reminds me of uh, they had a pull down sign. We've probably all seen it at some point. It's in German script. It's got a what looks like a gene genealogical chart. This was, if you're old enough or you went to a poorly funded enough high school, you remember the pull down maps. They actually had the pull down race chart in Nazi German era schools where they would point out this is fully Jewish, this is uh, Mischling, which would basically here in the United States be miscegenated in the first degree, the second degree. And then appearing on the one side only as like the opposite and only defined in a sense of here not Jewish is Deutschblutiger, German blood. Like they could only define who they were with who their enemy was. Um, and they didn't even, speaking of their differences between one drop and, and their one quarter rule, they never even got all the way to deporting of the second degree to death camps. There was pushback in Nazi Germany against sending those people. Um, German women, exactly, uh, should get uh, brought up at this point. German wives, 
the German blooded wives of Jewish men who were supposedly Mischlinga of the second degree, uh, engaged in what's called the Rosenstrasse protest and successfully saved the lives of their supposedly Jewish husbands from deportation. Um, kind of brings to light another one of these moments of the, the easy thing to say is that the protest against Nazi Germany was impossible, but it wasn't. It's actually possible. Protest shut down the euthanasia program, or at least sent it underground, to be honest. Uh, and protest actually saved the lives of these supposedly mixed, quote unquote, race uh, Jewish men. But I wanted to tap that on because it, it goes into the, how this definition is so important to both sides of the Atlantic, and especially in how they define themselves so impossible, how they define them today. And I'll, uh, I'll briefly touch on uh, religion here in the world of Plato Jim Crow. Um, everybody uh, who was a white supremacist, white supremacist in the South was ostensibly a Christian. Uh, in most places, they were Protestant. In Louisiana, they were Catholic. Um, but the historiography of Jim Crow and civil rights shows us that while early laws for segregation and the denial of voting rights were rooted in biblical claims. They usually used the ham story um, and they used the slavery in the rampant throughout the Old Testament. Um, it turns out that once we get to civil rights, the reason why civil rights is successful and that the defense of segregation isn't is because they couldn't, segregationists couldn't get white people in the South to see their religion as having anything to do with discrimination. They were racist and they were religious, but they didn't see those two things as the same anymore by the 1950s and 1960s. There's a great book about this called A Stone of Hope, which shows that it was in fact black religion that was able to solidify the civil rights movement because they were able to see their faith as coinciding with equality. And so if you're a white person, you have a belief that white supremacy is right. You have a belief in your religious faith. You have a belief that your taxes should build better roads. You have a belief in all these different things. And it turns out that a belief in segregation damages the ability for you to get better roads, because no business has come to the South during segregation. They don't want to be associated with that. It hurts your religion because everybody looks at you as horrible because Southern white Southern religion has always been associated with bigotry ever since 1619. I mean, the whole evolution of Southern theology has all just been white stress. And so they don't like that. And so they're willing to go along with segregation but they're not willing by the 1950s to put their faith behind them in a religious sense, whereas civil rights activists were. And that is gonna give them the momentum. And so that is what's gonna make what is essentially a David and Goliath story, this small black population be able to defeat the larger white population because they couldn't marshal their religion to get on board with the laws because by that point, their religion and segregation itself was largely separate. So, so the last thing I need to take that there's a question on my cast, but I think that my last question. We never wrap up, but I just want to mention too that Lillian, this is what Lillian Smith talks about a lot in her work in the 40s and 50s, as is the fact of how can you square your religious belief and your religious going to church on Sunday to go to the lynching. 
she's dealing with it. Is there a question on that? No, the, the last question because I know it's past two. I was thinking about um, the financial gains or the wealth. For example, I know the Jewish people were stripped of um, um, wealth, art, uh, jewelry, just everything. And so did Nazi Germany benefit from that? And then was there any way like reparations for things that were stolen? Because I wonder about too, like, I wonder too about Jim Crow and how um, not only Jim Crow, but then, but prior to that, the annihilation of, you know, Native American population and land that was stolen and how you have a lot of white wealth here in the South and how it, like, did they benefit? I know, but we're talking about the South, right? Because of Jim Crow, right? So like, how, you know, I'm just, it's just something I'm thinking about, about the wealth and the just things that when you oppress people, what you're able to come away with. I keep jumping. I can't wait to get yeah. <laughs> my most favorite topic uh, of all time. I mean, this is literally what I think about all the time. And I, I've, I've written some of it, but my new book is on, on looted art. Uh, and I specifically studied that looking through the looted Holocaust art, and then it's going to also be about uh, looted Holocaust art and then looted art from the Bologna's. So, but, but yes, I certainly think it's you cannot understand genocide, either the Holocaust or Bologna genocide, without looking at the broad generational, economic, and political impact that it has had. So, the Holocaust continues until today. If you think through the economic impact that the, the destruction of six million people and all of their property completely destroyed, and some taken by Germans for sure, but also morphed into the local populations. So the populations in Poland and the populations in Hungary and the populations in somebody moved into those apartments and wasn't Germans. Somebody still lives in Poland in apartments in Warsaw and Krakow, they're not Germans. In fact, Poland passed a law last year, or 2021, I can't remember which one, that basically says the Jewish descendants can no longer ask for their property to be returned. Because they, they're, and they're paranoid whenever, like, you know, a Jewish 40-year-old uh, comes and knocks on the door, it's like, oh my God, that's a blanket. And so I think the same goes, and I'll leave my colleagues to talk about the American experience, but I think this, this idea of, of the economic benefit of genocide is something that we really have to reckon with. It has like direct consequences until today. So very, thank you very much for so much. Thank you very exciting. I want to wrap up. I'll allow you to wrap up. Yeah, I want to wrap up with this. So two things. I, I, know, I know you mentioned that Jim Crow is just the just the South, but do you know where one of the largest Klan, you know, groups was? The second Klan? Indiana. And Oregon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you look at a lot of stuff that's going in Oregon, it explains a lot of the stuff that's going in Oregon, too. I think we need to get away from the discussion of the Jim Crow. When we say Jim Crow, we think of stuff. I know that. And because we have the legal strictures here, right? It's still there, but it's not labeled Jim Crow, right? I mean, we know that. The other thing that I always tell students, you know, correct me if I'm right, know about Pullman, but Germany has given reparations or some to, to survivors, right? Two things that I tell students too that I've noticed. We haven't even touched on Japanese incarceration. You know, we haven't even touched on internment, which we we put Japanese in first and second generation into camps. Um, 
I can give you good books if you want that, fiction books, but and George Takei's book, I think, about his own experience. But we put them in camps during World War II. And of course, we never really start talking about that so lightly. We've given them reparations. I forgot how much, but we've actually given reparations to them. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I know it's a large scale, but it, it's something. Especially if we're talking about the reparations of slavery, it's a whole broader discussion and fraught, I know. But if we're talking about that, if you're thinking about the economic wealth and growth of the systems that have, the, the guy you mentioned, the third largest enslaver in South Carolina, which puts him up there in the, in the country, right? How is that wealth built? Think about the companies that were that benefited from the Nazis, huh? the pharmaceutical companies, the motor companies that are still around that we still VW, right? Um, is it IB or Right. I mean, all these groups are still making money. Think about all the groups or individuals, the same thing dealing with you know, enslavement. The one the thing I found out too that shocked me, I was like, this those are mentioned too, during the Iranian hostage you know, situation. The the people who were held hostage, the Americans have received reparations from the US government the tune of like a million dollars a piece or something like that, if I remember correctly. So it's a broader discussion, I think an important discussion. And I think that the key that Tom has pointed out and that I always think about too is we have to get to the point where we look at ourselves. And the thing that I stress is we're afraid to look at ourselves. We've done good things. We've done awesome things. Everybody has, but there's also negative things that we've done that still impact us, impact us today. So I think looking at Jim Crow in connection with the Holocaust is extremely important. It's not easy, but I think that it's it's something that needs to be done. I have a good comment for y'all too about that. Anyways. If you want to wrap up anywhere done. Yeah. So reparations, I mean, in 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 the Japanese case, reparations were a pittance, you know, right? Monetary reparations would never really work because every single building that's ever mattered in this country was built by black hands. Every single thing that has ever, um, every piece of infrastructure that we have was built by black hands. Um, and more than that, we have taken away the geography of black America. You go back to the 18, 1841 riot in Cincinnati where they literally ran out every single black person from that town and then bought up all their land. We can talk about the other state through Atlanta. We can talk about 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina. They did the exact same thing. They instituted a pogrom against black population, forced them to leave, bought up all their land so they couldn't live there anymore. The same thing happened again with the bombing of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. And so it's the same thing sort of happened in New Orleans in 2006 after Katrina. Um, and so, I mean, what we do is we wait for black wealth to grow and then we figure out a way to take it. The difference is the Nazis did that until the mid-1940s. The White South has done that ever since 1620 and they haven't really stopped. It's the reason why this white, the reason why the South is last in every major category. It's the reason why we are behind economically the rest of the country, and in many ways still function like a third world country. It's because we are still engaged in a white oligarchy that limits its black population in the same way South Africa was doing from the 1950s to the 1980s. And so because of that, the only way reparations can work isn't going to be saying, all right, well, slaves. 15 million slaves were technically killed, 
in the 17th and 18th centuries. And so therefore we can put a value on that life and we'll give you that. That's not gonna work. Well, I mean, this, none of this even counts to like 40 acres and a mule and stuff like that, that we never, that we totally deny people as well. The only way this is gonna work is to restructure the way we see the spatial and economic geography of the country and give some of that back. Um, I don't exactly know how that works because I'm not an economist, but I know that historically the problems involved in accumulating black wealth have always been that you hit a certain threshold and there becomes a violent way that that is taken away from you. It's also a it's also East St. Louis in 18, 19, uh, 1917, all the way until Tulsa in 21, was a five-year period where there were more deaths by riot than in any other five-year period in the history of this hemisphere. So, and every single victim was black. Um, and every single victim, with the exception of a couple, were middle class, um, which was upper class for the vast majority of black urban residents. And because of that, how much wealth has been lost? I mean, it's, 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 it's not fathomable. And so there needs to be some kind of racial justice that involves economics. But if we're still living in a world where Florida is banning AFAM classes and Texas school books call slaves workers because you're not allowed to say slave in Texas elementary schools anymore, we are a long Voluntary way. workers, I think is what that was. Involuntary workers. They say involuntary they got rid of involuntary because they thought that sounded too bad too. So now children's textbooks in Texas um, use the term workers for slaves because white people would be offended if they say slaves because that's being mean to my ancestor uh, who happened to own those slaves. So you have to call them workers. If we're in a state like that, if we're in a position in a world like that, the reality is we're far away from any kind of any kind of compensatory action towards the kind of things we don't we've done because. Unlike the Nazis, we're still in the middle of We don't have Jim Crow laws anymore. We still have a legacy of Jim Crow that we're seeing every day in our textbooks, our laws, and everything else. So that's one of the ways it diverges. Right. That's the way it diverges because we're still doing it. I, I think maybe I'll, I'll try for a very short time. Um, German's been made to, to do some form of reparations, right? I don't. Um, maybe call me a cynic, but like no one has ever rushed right up to go. Let me make make this better now. Yeah. Um, right. No. Right. It's it is interesting that the German word word for it is "wieder Gutmachung," which means to make good again. But it's kind of just ironic how it works. But um, Germany's been made to do it. German companies have been made to do it. Um, every organization that in some way profited off of Jewish slave labor as they were being worked to death in concentration camps and labor camps. And, on their way to the extermination camps have been forced to do it. Even the French railroad system was one of the last companies to, to uh, be pushed into uh, reparations. And that has never happened. States did it, it, bringing up what was given back to Japanese Americans after incarceration during World War II is interesting because I'm not an American, so I'll say it again, but I think it's. The only time that the United States has done that at all. It's in the hostages. Those only took that yeah. yeah. So that's very, very interesting. And that was, of course, the hostages was, was somebody else doing the act. It right. wasn't that he was starting doing the act. He was but if I, if I can, if I can like, take that one step further, there was in, in the bill that gave reparation money to Japanese Americans, there was a line that said, 
this makes no precedent for anyone else. They put in the bill, oh, this does not mean we're making good on anybody else. Oh, it looks like an NDA. I mean, that yeah. looked like a non-disclosure. And that was in the eight, that was under Reagan, right? Right. Yeah. And I, you know, this would be my part, very personal conclusion of bringing up reparations after these things. I got through grad school in part on two different fellowships that were funded by German reparations for what they had done to Jews in World War II. I was a George Mossa fellow and they took everything from the Mossi family um, and then had to give it all back in the 1990s and then it became all education money. Yeah, and then there's a, yeah, absolutely. There's a thing called the Claims Conference for Jewish Council on Material Claims Against Germany that uses part of its funds to fund Claims Conference fellowships. I'll just end up saying, imagine if that applied to the other side. And see that, when Thomas was talking, that there isn't a minds or anything because you can't be like this medial, blah, blah, blah. but those are ways to think about Like, what are the opportunities? What are the things you can do to move things forward and to rectify the wrongs? Like I said, it's it's like I tell my students, some of them are saying it's not easy to look at, to face that because nobody's going to do it voluntarily, like you mentioned with Jeff. Nobody's going to do it voluntarily. So if you want to stick around, we'll be around, but we're here. Thank y'all for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.